Welcome to Government in Plain Language, hosted by Mabinti Yella. Each episode, we talk to subject matter experts and former executives to uncomplicate the business of government. Good morning. How's everybody doing out there, world? I'm your host, Mabinti Yella, and I'm the host of Government in Plain Language. And joining me today is a wonderful guest. His name is Mr. Michael Abreu. And to give you some background here, Mr. Obreu is a former program manager for one of the largest, and I mean largest, corporate networks in the world. That's the Naval Enterprise Network, a $4.5 billion program. He has almost 30 years of public service experience, which includes 3,500 hours of flying in the P-3 Orion aircraft and working on two, I mean two, multi-billion dollar space and aircraft programs. He's perfectly suited to, to talk about business and the business of government. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Abreu. How are you feeling today? Hey, good morning, Mabinti. I'm feeling really well, thank you. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm really honored to be on your show and spread a little bit of good news and information that people can use to uh, kind of think about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and maybe improve a little bit. So thank you for having me. Thank you. And the honor is definitely uh, ours here. So let, let's kind of do a little brief overview here. So you spent the majority of your professional career in the U.S. Navy. You graduated from the Naval Academy in 92. You earned your master's in aerospace, aeronautical, and astro- astronautical engineering. Such a mouthful there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you're, you're later tasked with managing various uh, Navy projects. And as I mentioned, a $4.5 billion, pro- billion dollar program. Um, and so, you know, this is kind of a, a lot going on here. Can you like kind of walk us through your journey, your professional journey and how you kind of got to the program management position? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So uh, not unlike a lot of people, I had a lot of great help along the way. I had right. a lot of great mentors. I was very fortunate to be given some uh, great opportunities early in my career uh, and, and essentially throughout my career. And so that was really uh, important to me that, the teams I work with, the mentors that I had, the chances that I was given, I mean, that was really what what, what led me to, uh, you know, what I think is a great career. I had a lot of fun. I learned a lot and uh, hopefully I was able to contribute uh, to the warfighter uh, in a meaningful way. So after graduation, I went to flight school, uh, became a B-3 Orion Naval Flight Officer, as you, you pointed out. Uh, spent a long time uh, in that aircraft, uh, flying overseas, uh, doing uh, various missions in a couple of different squadrons. Uh, which was a lot of fun. I learned the value of uh, the uh, no kidding systems engineering aspect of the acquisition process uh, from the operational side of the house, right? So the Navy takes its operators and makes them into acquisition professionals after they have a certain time of operations under their belt. So that certainly helps help me uh, become a better acquisition officer. And I think that's that's a good thing that the Navy does. So uh, after my couple of squadrons, uh, in between my, my flying squadrons, I went to Naval Postgraduate School and obtained my master's degree, which is a great experience. Um, and then I transitioned into the Navy's Aerospace Engineering Duty Officer Corps, which is the Navy's acquisition arm for aerospace and networks programs. Mm-hmm. So I was really lucky to have two amazing tours at the National Reconnaissance Office, uh, working on signals intelligence and imagery intelligence satellite development programs. Uh, Very, very large programs, uh, multi-billion dollar programs there. Uh, And then I was fortunate to also have a tour at uh, Naval Air Station Patuxent River in Patuxent River, Maryland, uh, working on the E-2D Advanced Hawkeye aircraft, uh, another multi-billion dollar program. And finally, I was uh, very, very fortunate uh, in there uh, to uh, 
to do a, a tour at Google with the Secretary of Defense Executive Fellows right. Program, which is a lot of fun. Uh, learned a lot out there in Mountain View, California. I was with Google for a year. Um, I'm only one of two uh, military officers, uh, correction, three military officers, officers that spent some time at Google uh, in that program. Wow. And that was really, really incredible. Uh, and then I wrapped up my career as the program manager of Naval Enterprise Networks Program Office, which was uh, managing the NGEN contract and the OneNet overseas network, which was just an amazing, amazing experience. Uh, obviously very challenging, uh, huge corporate enterprise, very, very um, complex and uh, very high paced and with uh, the toughest customers in the world, I like to say. So uh, that was a, a really amazing experience as well. So ended up transitioning from the Navy in 2017 after 25 years of service, uh, went into uh, defense industry. And so now I'm in the defense industry and I'm working on electronic warfare SIGINT systems uh, for uh, one of our, our very, very unique and uh, very interesting defense contractors. So I've had a great career. I've had a great run. I've had uh, the opportunity to work with some great people, amazing teams, um, had some wonderful mentors across, along the way, and and they helped me get, uh, get to where I am. And so you know, this kind of discussion with you, just like uh, everybody else, is paint it, paint it back, right? I want right. to be a mentor. I want to be able to mentor people coming behind me um, and be able to help them get better at what they do and provide great services for our country and for our warfighters. Fantastic. Yeah. Such a rich and diverse uh, background here. Um, you mentioned, you know, working for the toughest customers in the world. Talk about that. Like, what do, what do you mean by that? What were some of like the biggest uh, challenges of kind of managing this really complex, huge contract as in, as in the, uh, the corporate enterprise, the Navy's corporate em- enterprise? Yeah, uh, the, the acquisition programs I worked on were all very large. They're all what we call ACAT 1D programs, right? Or equivalent programs right. uh, on the space side. And so what you find with those programs is they are incredibly complex and the end user and the end customer um, is really demanding in terms of what that system is you know, going to provide because we have to have an advantage over our adversaries, right? That's just right. the bottom line. And so whether that's a space program, an air program, a network program, a ship program, it, it doesn't matter, right? We we are responsible for building things that give, a, give us an advantage over our adversaries. And so the programs I worked on all had that in common. But the Enterprise Network Program was really interesting and unique in that the things that we did on that program touched every end user in the Navy, right? right. So um, every civilian, every sailor used that system in some way, shape, or form. And so the things that we did whether they were small or whether they were large, impacted the end user. And uh, that was really an, an amazing experience to be able to, to work with a great team to do that. The customers in that environment were not only the end users, every single person who touched that network, but right. I coordinated with over 30 Department of the Navy CIOs who were responsible for their own smaller networks to right. provide specialized services within the Navy, Navy domains uh, that they served. And so we had to coordinate. So it was not only a very large enterprise network, but it was also coordination required across Navy CIOs, across the policy domain, um, and really making sure that we were doing the things as fast as we could to modernize and leverage IT to make the enterprise better, to become a business enabler, rather than simply be treated as a cost center, which some um, IT enterprises are, are treated, unfortunately. So. I think we did a, an excellent job at uh, making our customers happy, making improvements that matter to the end user and to our, our customers, 
Um, and obviously to senior leaders in the Navy, they paid attention, right? Because right. If their network wasn't working or something wasn't going the right way or they needed some sort of access within their commands. Uh, we had to be responsive. We had a great re uh, relationship with uh, the enterprise operations uh, office and the Navy Enterprise Operations Command. And uh, that was really a wonderful experience as well to be able to be so close to the operations side of the network and, and have a great relationship with them to make sure we're doing what they needed to do as well. So those customers were super challenging. Uh, There's never a dull moment. Uh, I had you know 20 items at a time that I was tracking that had senior leadership attention within the Navy. And uh, you know, balancing all of those while still getting the rest of the things done was uh, was an interesting four years, I'll say that. I mean, that's definitely a lot of stakeholders. I mean, wow, you're talking about, you, you said Navy CIO. So for people who don't know, chief information officers, the end users, which could be civilian or the sailors. And then, you know, of course, your own program, internal uh, users and customers and stuff like that. Um, that's a lot. <laughs> um, how do you how are you able to negotiate all the different pains and interests and all of that? How, how do you balance all those stakeholder interests? Yeah, well, there's a couple of ways, right? One, I had a great deputy, Mr. Phil Anderson, who I believe was also on your show uh, yes. and, and provided some great uh, lessons learned in his his uh, his episode. But that was fantastic. We were a great team. Uh, Phil focused mostly on internal program office uh, workings and mechanisms and what was going on inside the program office. Uh, I would say you know seventy to eighty percent. I focused uh, 70 to 80% of my time on what was going on outside the program office to make sure I understood what the users, what the senior leaders in the Navy uh, needed, uh, what the budget profiles looked like, what the policies changes uh, were looking like, what the operations commands were looking at, what the cyber environment was looking like. And so we had a great uh, teamwork effect there between uh, Bill and myself, where we were able to balance the external stakeholder needs uh, within the program Right. as well as the internal operations to the program office. And so I think that that was one of the keys. The other key was ensuring that our organization was really ready and focused on the things that we were trying to solve, the problems that were in front of us, the obstacles and or the objectives that we were trying to achieve, right? And so that was a really big focus for us in the first year out of those four years to really focus on what the challenges were, what we wanted to achieve, and then really think about organizing quickly around those so we could put our efforts in the places that would have the most effect uh, right. over time. And so those things early on as, as I, I got into the program office uh, assignment and uh, working with Phil, and then obviously structuring my team, we had some great team leaders there to be able to, to help manage the process is moving forward and work with our industry partner to provide those services. I think those are all very important aspects of answering the mail, if you will, uh, for our Navy users. All right, absolutely. So obviously you mentioned some lessons learned, but particularly partnering uh, with uh, Mr. Anderson. Again, be sure our listeners who watch our first episode with Mr. Anderson. Um, what would you say are some lessons that you learned, not only about yourself and some of the work that you did, but about yeah, the federal enterprise process in general? Well, there are a few, and I've learned a, a lot of good lessons over my career. Out of that last program, uh, I really learned a lot about how quickly you have to move and how quickly your users and your stakeholders expect you to move. 
mm-hmm. and quite frankly, how, how you should move um, in order to stay ahead of our adversaries. And so that was a big lesson for me, not, not necessarily not having seen it before, but really feeling the need to, and, and the, the responsibility to get the team moving in the right direction very, very quickly to meet that need. And also showing senior leadership that we were moving quickly, that right. the team was doing the right things in the right direction and adjusting course as necessary. And so for me, it was a lot about scale. It was a lot about speed, uh, lessons learned, right? How to move mm-hmm. faster, um, how to measure whether you're you're going in the right direction and, and meeting the needs that and the objectives that you set in front of you. Um, and then really the scale uh, side of the house was uh, enormous. Right. I mean, we right. have tons of users. We're the largest, one of the largest networks, corporate networks in the world. We had uh, over 2,500 locations, you know, over, over well over 700,000 users. Right. So that scale uh, was just an enormous challenge to keep on top of. But again, luckily we had great partners. We, we learned that we had to partner together in the ecosystem with the operations command. We had to partner with the policymakers. We had to partner with our budget controllers to make sure that we had the resources to meet the requirements uh, that they put forward on us. And so really those those challenges of scale were were really eye-opening uh, when I first got into the program. Yeah. Um, and we also had lots of issues, you know, that we have to solve on day one, right? Uh, it right. wasn't like you walk in and you discover some, we discovered some issues along the way one by one. By one. As soon as, uh, you know, I got into that assignment, we had some, some some issues we had to go solve right away. And so, you know, the last lesson I'll pass off to you out of uh, a whole big list I, I could pass on to everyone is um, look at those challenges as opportunities right. to focus, to get better, prioritize those, recognize you can't get everything done right, in a short amount of time, but you got to focus on the big items as a senior leader that are super important to your organization and to your users, prioritize those all the other things have to get done, but make sure you're moving forward with the highest priority items quickly and focusing on those. It kind of reminds me of, um, I started using this because I just randomly discovered it on, on the internet. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dwight, former President Eisenhower's decision uh, matrix, mm-hmm. where he has like, de- you know, urgent, but not important, important, sure. but not urgent. It kind of reminds me kind of that kind of approach to, to decision making and, and things like that. Okay. Um, you mentioned it, which I think our users would definitely, our audience rather, uh, would be interested in is, is your stand at Google. Like how did that um, align with some of the things that you were doing in the program office? Uh, that was a really appropriate to tour uh, right before my program management tour. So right. I, I was at Google right before I came into the program office assignment. And uh, I learned a ton of things at Google. I mean, it really opened my eyes up to how industry does business from the inside, how Silicon Valley in particular does business on the inside. Um, And I have, again, a long list of things that I learned there, but uh, a couple of the most important ones uh, revolve around um, scale and data. So how do you use data at scale in order to affect your business or affect um, how you're approaching a certain issue or a certain problem and solving it? Uh, obviously, they're a, a world leader in, in data science. Uh, they're a world leader in, in data center design and engineering and big data. And so uh, as part of uh, that particular tour, one of the key lessons I learned was the, the power of that big data, mm-hmm. the, the need to move towards uh, big data analysis to find our government data 
right? right? And make sense of it, right? And so we, I realized that we, the royal we, uh, all of us had been living uh, with systems that have been developed over the last you know, 20 or 30 years, if you will, gathering data that piled up in different locations, you know, structured and unstructured data. And getting access to that data was vitally important for not only businesses, but for the government to be able to make sense of it and be able to use it to help guide business decisions. And right. so that was a big lesson for me. And I tried to focus on that as best I could to bring that into the program office as we looked at how we were doing business in the Navy enterprise and try and use data to guide our decisions and find that data. And, it, and it's it's difficult. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long process and requires uh, focused energy uh, across the DOD and federal customers to go do that. And, and they're doing that today. I've seen great, great efforts and great uh, strides being made in that direction across the DOD and other federal agencies. So the big data aspect was one of them. Um, one of the other lessons I learned was um, just the the way they approach hiring and personnel and people and talent. So part of what we're uh, here to discuss today is kind of talent and people right. and how we approach people and how we uh, get get the best people we possibly can and incentivize them to stay in government service. And they had a unique approach to personnel management there. Mm -hmm. They call it people operations. And what they do is they do a 360 degree evaluation basically okay. every six months um, as part of their personnel management structure and approach. And so you get feedback from your direct reports, you get feedback from your manager, and you get feedback from three or four peers, some inside and some outside your organization to get a rounded picture of how you're doing and how you're performing. And so they incentivize collaboration and teamwork quite heavily. And so that 360 degree valuation really lets everyone know, you yourself, your manager know, where you need to adjust and where, where folks can, can be better collaborators and better teammates both inside their organization and outside their organization. And so I found that to be really enlightening, really valuable. Having gone through a few 360 degree evaluations myself, I found those very, very enlightening and helpful for me as a leader. I think my teams found those very enlightening. So I really do think that that's a very, very powerful way uh, to, to do uh, evaluations and provide good feedback moving forward. And so that was a really, really interesting lesson at, at Google as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one of the more popular mechanisms used in HR, uh, especially on the private sector, 360 feedback. Right. So you talked about uh, one of the things that you mentioned was when you became a program manager, particularly when you got to the, the uh, Naval Network's uh, assignment, um, you talked about problems that were already there. So like my, my question, a big part of what we talk about with this show is transformational change. How do you get there? You know, if, you, if there are existing problems, um, you know, as a person who's led strategic transformation, because obviously you're going to have to change a few things, you know, especially things that aren't working. What, the, what, what is transformational change to you? And what does a successful transformational change look like, particularly in something as large and complex as a corporate network? Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Uh, I would say that there's a few maxims that apply here, right? Um, one of them is um, the only constant is change, right? And so change is going to happen whether you like it or not. So might as well get comfortable with it, understand it, 
mm-hmm. and and really figure out how you're going to deal with it as an organization and, and at all levels, right? And right. so that's just the way we do business, and that's necessary in terms of our business, right? Um, the other is um, if you don't start, you're never going to get there, right? And so you 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 have to start at some point. So you can't spend a lot of time, uh, excessive amount of time analyzing uh, analysis by paralysis, they, they right. call it, right? So you have to be able to very quickly understand where your challenges are and what your, where they are relative to your goals and your, your budget that you're uh, to, to put against those problems, right? Also, a wise man once said, the beginning is the most important part of the work, right? So when you're up against these transformational challenges, everybody encounters them at different stages of their life cycle. You might be coming into a program or an office or a work environment where they're halfway through one thing, but just starting another or at the end of another. So depending on what part of your organization or your system or your enterprise that is transforming, some pieces of those might be at certain different points, right? right? So you have to also understand where all those points are, where all those pieces of your organization or your system are in that life cycle and that journey and really figure out how you want to manage those because each of those stages, whether they're starting or in the middle or near the end, require a slightly different approach in order to, to, to make sure that they're successful. So that's another one. Um, and the last thing I would say is from your enterprise transformation perspective, um, you have a goal, you have a budget, and right. you have to be able to check your course along the way. I like to say, you know, if you move out and you're moving quickly, that's wonderful. You will get somewhere. You just might not get where you want to go. So you have to constantly check in and look at your vectors to make sure that you're continually going in the right direction towards the right requirement. And so the the course corrections and the regular check-ins in terms of progress, in terms of metrics, are super important to be able to understand where you are in that journey relative to your objectives, relative to your budget. And quite frankly, it's a it's a huge challenge. There are large gaps in, in, with regard uh, to our ability to plan effectively for or enterprise transformation and system transformation. Uh, how to monitor that? How to gather the data associated with that? How to leverage that data to make good decisions or good course corrections? It, it is a it's a significant challenge. You mentioned um, a lot about complexity. Can you break that break that down for us a little bit? Yeah, um, I like to think that um, complexity is is really related to a math function uh, called n factorial. I learned a little bit about this at Google. While I was involved in kind of getting into big data, big data analytics, how they do that at Google, and uh, I really came across this function that's that's used quite uh, widely in graph theory and social networking, and is a very very powerful function in mathematics. So n factorial is the number of ways that certain objects can be put together, combined, or permutated, right. right? So you might remember it from your math classes. So it's really related to complexity uh, very, very closely. So for example, five factorial is five times four times three times two times one, which is the number of ways five objects can be combined together, right? In different ways, right? Um, and so that ends up being a measure of complexity, if you will, in a system, right? Right. So five times four times three times two times one is for you math majors out there, 120. So let's say you have five people in a meeting, let's say, or five direct reports, right? The number of ways that those five people can interact together is 120, which is kind of a big number, right? Huge. It's pretty big. And so that's a measure of complexity. 
Um, but let me give you an example of what happens when, let's say you go to a meeting with 20 people in it, or you go to a cocktail party, or you go to a family gathering with 20 people. And you can hear people kind of talking together, different groups gathering, shouting across the room, et cetera. Or one person taps on the glass and says, hey, can everybody listen to me? All of those are examples of ways those 20 people can interact together, right? Well, the number of ways they can interact together is 20 factorial, which is 20 times 19 times 18 and so on. It's a fairly big number, pretty complex. Would you want to venture a guess as to what or how big 20 factorial is? I wasn't very good at business statistics, so no. <laughs> so I ask this question a lot when I talk about complexity as it relates to organizational uh, theory and such, right? But 20 factorial is 2.43 times 10 to the 18. That's 2.43 followed by 18 zeros. Wow. That is an enormous number. So by just adding 15 people to the discussion, you've increased the complexity enormously. And so when you think about that sort of thing, it, it kind of starts to make sense intuitively, right? Smaller teams, five to seven people uh, are able to interact uh, more effectively and make a lot more tactical progress right, with a working group or uh, an IPT kind of structure, a very small tactical team. And that kind of relates to how special operations kind of do business, right? Five to seven uh, people, five to seven warfighters, those sorts of things. So no, in order to make tactical progress and get fast, you need smaller teams in order to right. drive those things forward. Now, on the opposite end, 20 factorial is a giant number. That's a great way to approach kind of the wisdom of the crowd kind of way of thinking and, and inputs uh, from the wisdom of the crowd. So the more inputs you get on a difficult problem, the more likely you are to have a better solution to that problem, although that takes a little bit of time uh, to go get. And so there's different ways to use larger groups to get wisdom of the crowd type of inputs and canvas and for large inputs. And a lot of your viewers have experienced this before where you get surveys or you get asked to participate in a large group kind of group think kind of effort uh, to solve a problem, if you will, or, or generate ideas mm -hmm. to a problem. And uh, then skinny down to a tactical team of five to seven folks in order to go make tactical progress against those objectives. Right. So a lot of people don't think of it in regard to complexity and they don't really understand the effect of adding just one more person to your team or your discussion or your email or anything else, what the effect that has on uh, potentially the speed of getting to where you want to go. So it makes sense intuitively, but I want your, your viewers to understand that it is not just exponential, it is factorial and it is enormous. And so when you talk about how we do business as the federal government, how the defense acquisition system is set up, uh, all of our stakeholders, how we make decisions, mm -hmm. all of our policies, as soon as you start adding one thing, one more thing, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger at a rate that, that is really absolutely incredible, right? And so that's the, the genesis of streamlining, of reducing the number of steps in our, in our programs and our policies, uh, defense acquisition reform, and those sorts of things are designed to try and get some of those steps and some of the policies and some of those factorial combinations out of the equation to make right. us faster. So just wanted to share that with your viewers that yeah, kind of yeah. stimulate some brain cells, if you will. Yeah, definitely stimulating some brain cells with that. I uh, never thought I would have to do math in my own interview, <laughs> but here we go. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Definitely something I'm going to take for my own uh, decision-making and understanding of, again, ecosystems and things like that. Great. So yeah, you mentioned people. Okay. So you're talking about something that's super complex. And as you mentioned, kind of using the 
the infactoro example methodology, I don't want to call it tactic, I guess you want to call it, um, there within one person, there's several different connections and several different touch points. How do you make sense of that in terms of getting buy-in for organizational change? Mm, yeah, that's a, typically a, a big challenge when you're transforming an enterprise or an organization, right? I found that by far, 100%, unless it's an extreme emergency, the best way to get folks to buy in is get them to share in that vision and the building of what that transformation looks like. Um, at, at all levels, you can't, again, the wisdom of the crowd, it's very difficult to have 30 or 40 or 70 people all buy in. Certainly you need to keep them informed, but your core leadership team, if that's seven, 10, 15 people uh, that are necessary for the success of the organization, um, a couple of the stakeholders uh, that are involved in the process or in the outcome, the users, a couple of the users that are involved in the outcome, you have to be able to set up that ecosystem that represents the, the team that is involved in not only the execution, but the end user and the folks that are affected by the outcome and get their buy-in, right? Uh, when I first came to the, my program office job, we knew, uh, Mr. Anderson and I knew that we had to transform. We, we knew that we had to get, get started on that journey as we looked at what was ahead of us for the next several years. And the team, uh, right, we got the team together and we basically got our senior leadership team to, to buy in and build that particular transformation strategy and approach together. Um, that takes time. A lot of senior leaders uh, are reluctant to take that time because it's a huge investment. I mean, we're talking hours and hours of getting teams together, focused and having leaders drive through uh, specific agenda items to get to clarity on the objectives that you want to achieve in the transformation process, how you're going to do it, who's going to do it. But if you take the time up front, again, as I said, the beginning is the most important part of the work, you will set yourself up for success in the future. You will right. really get your team to buy in to really understand. And even if they disagree with with with, uh, with one course of action, at least they were able to participate and know that their voice was heard. Right. Really, really important. Uh, again, as I said, uh, other than extreme emergencies where you have to really make a change mm -hmm. quickly, uh, I think when you embark on these large transformation journeys, uh, you have to get the team to buy in and help build that and provide them some steering because you can't do it yourself. Everybody needs to work together as a team. And so you, you have to you have to get them in the room and, and talk through it. Speaking of, you know, stakeholders and uh, team members, I guess, and part of any kind of transformational change, you know, one of the things that uh, we, we all know, one of the federal government's uh, biggest teammates is in, in some respect is, are, is the private sector, our private uh, firms. Um, you know, how, what role do federal contractors play in this? Um, in, in the work that you in work of transformation or the work in general of improving government. And then, you know, crucially, I think is super important. How do you create relationships or uh, these partnerships so that they are mutually beneficial? Yeah, that is one of the, the cruxes of what we're up against every day in the acquisition world across the federal government, right, is how right. we forge those partnerships. Um, what, what I always like to do when I speak to people about the industry's role in, in delivering services or products to the federal government, whether it's DOD or, or across the rest of the federal government, um, I ask them, how much does the federal government uh, produce for users or end users? What mm -hmm. systems do they build themselves? No kidding. 
what technologies do they produce themselves? And you'll find out that they produce some amazing things, but in small pockets for specific reasons, right? Right. There's an ecosystem that is involved in delivering products and services to the federal government, DOD or otherwise, right? Right. And that relies mostly on industry. And so they are critical to providing anything that the federal government needs or uses. Absolutely right. critical. Uh, they provide the vast majority of it, right? right. So uh, when's the last time that I put my hands on a computer system to program uh, a satellite to do something? Right. Or I did system engineering uh, integration and test activities on a satellite or an aircraft or a network. When's the last time right. I configured a router, right? right? Or my team configured a router, right? Or right. installed a router or installed a Wi-Fi system. Right. Or, you know, built a, you know, took a, got a welder and welded uh, something on a ship, right? Mm -hmm. The answer is not a lot, right? Or zero, right? There are certain pockets of the government in our laboratory systems, our federal laboratory systems, our DOD laboratory systems that do those kind of things and do some very, very innovative research. And Mr. Anderson uh, talked about that in his episode where you have to incentivize talent to come to the government to be able to do those really, right. really innovative things. And you have to have technically focused people in the government to be able to, to manage that partnership with industry. But I would tell you, we are not the success as a country and our defense is not as strong as it is today without uh, industry, defense, defense industry and the commercial industry partnering to defend our country. We're in it together. Right. Uh, the, real, the real key is how to address those pieces of the ecosystem uh, defense industry does an awful lot. Commercial industry can be leveraged, which I think uh, the DOD is doing a fantastic job and other federal agencies are doing a great job lately of leveraging commercial industry. But how do we get those unique solutions that the federal government invests in or the laboratories produce and how do we get those in the hands of industry in order to bring those to our, our customers and our warfighters and our end users, right? Mm -hmm. That's the real key. Um, how, do we, how do we leverage those things and, and get them to scale? Right. right. So I don't think any of our federal labs or any of our facilities are going to produce a thousand or two thousand of anything. Right. right. You have to turn to industry in order to do that. And so you have to have that transfer of knowledge. Now, that said, you have to have a technical management force in the government to be able to effectively partner and manage with industry. Um, and it is a partnership. Industry right. is not perfect. They make mistakes. I'm on the industry side now. I was on the government side, right? Neither side is perfect at what they do. Right. So you have to be able to find that partnership, be brutally honest with each other and understand the technical challenges that you're facing and be able to overcome those as a team together. Um, where we get in trouble is we don't estimate properly in terms of what we think uh, the house is going to cost to build, if you will. Right. right. Uh, and then we overrun, right? Uh, and then we all get in trouble because it costs more than we said it was going to cost. But if you step back and look at it and you did the risk analysis up front, you'll discover that we we probably did know that it might cost that final amount in the end, but we didn't really you know, uh, pull the strings and, and lay it out on paper in terms of what those risks were. So so that partnership with the, with industry and the federal government is super important, is absolutely essential to the defense of our country, uh, to the effective functioning of our government. Um, and we have to have smart people in government to right. be able to manage that successfully. Absolutely. Again, we, we get back to the people, people equation, rather. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned having the importance of having a technical management 
management um, mm-hmm. as part of uh, this whole equation. And so that kind of brings me to, to my next topic or my next uh, question here. Um, you know, I attend like a lot of webinars and lectures and one of the most popular topics, of course, I'm sure you've heard it uh, while you were a government, a government um, employee, um, the talent gap. OK, so in your experience, right, because you're to be mentioning these needing to have these technical managers. Right. Is there really a talent gap or is it really a knowledge gap or is it both? Hmm. Well, it depends on the definition of the talent gap. True. What, what gap are you talking about? Is it the gap between what industry needs and what's available in the workplace? Uh, the marketplace to be able to right. bring you to your company? Is it uh, the talent that you need in a government organization to manage uh, particular programs, if you will, uh, based on what you have in the federal government? Um, is it uh, a gap between what you're currently teaching employees to do today versus what you really need to teach them for tomorrow to be prepared? And so um, it depends on, on what gap you're actually talking about in my mind. Um, I would say that first and foremost, that that gap, if you will, ebbs and flows depending on the state of the economy. Right. right. If the economy is very robust and there's lots of jobs out there in certain fields, then people tend to go towards the more high paying jobs, which tend to be in industry. When the economy is not so robust, those people tend to go back to the confidence and the surety uh, and the reliability of the government workforce. Uh, your pay is a little bit lower, but your benefits are fantastic. The, your job security is, is uh, a lot better, I think. Um, and so they'll, they'll swing back towards government service in general. And so I think it depends on, on the economy to, to a great degree. The other more, more important, I think, topic in the area of talent and talent gap is really preparing the government workforce for the future, mm-hmm. right? Industry is going there regardless because they're driving the vast majority of technological innovation, I would say, right? But the government employee side of the house has to prepare for the future. What does that mean? It has to be able to train folks that it has, uh, well, basically incentivize them to come in, right? Right. Um, Appeal to them on the basis of mission, on the basis of federal service, service to your country, right? You don't have a lot of professions that have that feel, by the way, of, of really serving your country, either as a uniform uh, service member or as a federal government employee, um, you're, you're serving your country, right? You're providing service. You're not in it to, to make millions of dollars. You're in it to make sure that the capabilities get delivered to help defend our country and make government work properly. And so I think appeal to them on that sense of mission, make sure that you're focused on that sense of mission all the time. And once you get those folks in to, uh, to your program offices and to your in federal service, Make sure you train them and prepare them for the future. All of the things that we're, ta- we're talking about here, um, you know, that are technolo- technological advances, 5G, artificial intelligence, machine learning, virtual reality, um, I could go on and on. Right. How are those things going to affect how we do business in the federal government, right? People need to talk about that. You need to mm-hmm. schedule, you know, you build training around that. You need to build seminars around that. You need to, to have your employees participate in those sorts of things to be able to, to think outside the box. If you don't focus on those and give your employees opportunities to become aware of those and prepare for the future, they'll get further and further behind. So if you want to talk about a gap, if you don't focus on those sorts of things, that gap between what technology is doing, what industry is doing, and what the federal government has to contribute and manage is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And so in my mind, 
from a federal government perspective, it really boils down to education, training, fostering that uh, knowledge. Uh, Bill, you mentioned knowledge. Is it a, a talent gap or a knowledge gap? Focusing the knowledge and getting their, their teams, getting our federal government teams the knowledge that they need to be able to keep up with technology, manage that industry partnership, and make good decisions as to where it needs to go uh, over time. Because we're, we're in a very revolutionary time. If people haven't figured that out right. already. Uh, this technology space that we're in right now is going to revolutionize it as if it hasn't already. In the next 20 to 30 years, uh, it's going to revolutionize how we live our daily lives every day. It, it already has some negative, some positive, but uh, it's it's going to keep coming at us. So we, we got to get ahead of that. Yeah. So um, you mentioned a, a lot of great, great points here. Um, in your opinion, because um, I, think, I think some of the ways in which, from my experience and from my observations in which um, a lot of agencies are trying to address those kind of issues, uh, especially as especially in terms of trying to make sure that they keep agencies keep pace with with industry in terms of innovation and, and technologies that are necessary to, to do their business. Um, they they they're finding new ways to to reach out to and engage with uh, the small businesses. Um, so my my question here is. You know what role do small business play in, play in the equations, and what are your thoughts on like I would say entrepreneurial ventures like AFWorks and uh, the government also has Challenge.gov and some of these other kind of non traditional means of kind of acquiring new businesses and new not new businesses but um, new new vendors yeah. um, reaching out to again non traditional vendors. What what are your thoughts on those kind of initiatives? Yeah, there, there's a lot in there. And uh, I would say that uh, under Secretary for Acquisition, uh, Kendall, Mr. Kendall started Better Buying Power uh, some time ago. Under Secretary Lord, um, uh, helped revitalize DoD 5000.01, which is our defense acquisition system to provide new paths towards getting uh, solutions to our warfighters uh, a lot faster, which I think right. is, is going is to really uh, help in the future. Obviously, those sorts of things take time. I mean, Better Buying Power was started, uh, you know, 2012-ish timeframe, uh, maybe 20, 2010, 2011 timeframe, right? But that that sort of strategic change takes time. So that was kind of the first uh, salvo in in the the, the latest modern uh, approach to revitalizing our acquisition process. Um, and Ms. Lord has continued that. Right. And I think in a fantastic way. And the idea is really to provide the ecosystem and the path to developing and getting solutions in the hands of warfighters and decision makers faster, right? Because speed is our advantage, right? All of us know that, our senior leaders know that, our defense leaders know that uh, it is the advantage uh, that we have to to really exploit. And so how do we provide those conduits uh, to to do that? Uh, As part of my lessons learned from from Google, uh, our class uh, out of that uh, executive fellowship program, the 14 of us, provided recommendations. Every class every year that goes through that program provides recommendations to senior DOD leaders uh, all the way to, to the Secretary of Defense type of level uh, as to what things uh, the DOD should work on in order to affect strategic transformation and get faster and get better uh, from industry best practices point of view. So I think those are all being adopted uh, to a large extent and have been moving forward here for the last five to six years. So, right. so again, my, my time at Google is in the 2012-2013 timeframe. Seven years later, eight years later, those changes are starting to take effect. So those right. take time, first of all. So uh, I want to point that out. So, so a lot of these uh, uh, speed efforts 
really take some time to, to, to get in place. Uh, that said, the innovation type of angle, the app works, uh, nav works, right? nav works type of thing, um, the innovation kind of hubs uh, that, that we've got, the Air Force has them, Navy has them, Army has them, uh, the rapid capability offices that have been mm-hmm. stood up um, combined with those uh, new alternative acquisition processes, uh, other transactional authorities, right? All of the ways that the DOD in particular is structuring ways to get solutions to warfighters faster to meet the meet needs are phenomenal. I think they're going in the right direction. I think uh, it gives small businesses to your question, a way to participate um, in an ecosystem that uh, can leverage them either inside the small business defense industrial base or small business in the commercial technology base, right? Um, we have an awful lot of ways now, better ways today than we had even a year or two ago to start right. uh, connecting. So I think small businesses are super important to participate in that environment. Um, they need to continue to play. Uh, very, very difficult for small businesses to do lots of big things uh, to to climb the ladder and get over the hurdle that is doing business with the federal government. I mean, right. I, I tell you, right? We the federal government doesn't make it easy. Uh, to do business Not with the DOD <laughs> or the federal government, right? You, you right. got an awful lot of, you know, you can't do business with the federal government until the stack of paper is higher than your computer monitor, right? At least, uh, if not higher. Um, and so the leadership has worked to, to start changing that, and, and that's really important. Um, and small businesses are absolutely critical to that. I mean, they're they're um, investing in new technology. They have great ideas. How do we leverage those? How do we get those ideas in the hands of the next level companies, the next level providers that can take that and run with it and scale it, right? right. And so I think that they're absolutely critical to, to be kept healthy, not only through small business incentive programs, um, but um, all of the small business requirements that we put on contracts are there for a reason. And I think we need to make sure in every program, every federal agency needs to make sure that they're leveraging small businesses 100%. Kind of track, track back a little bit not only interested in the small business bit, but also I'm interested in uh, the work that innovation labs uh, themselves, like the products that they're producing. Um, I guess the larger question, you did mention that um, there are some aspects where they're, they're, they're doing, doing some things, but would you say are agencies innovating enough? I mean, are there more, I mean, cause like I, I the reason why I asked this because I participated in a program called FedTech where we learned about, we partnered with different agencies and learned about different technologies that different government labs are, are doing and are trying to um, commercialize. Like I learned all these different things that all these different inventions and products that are, are, are that exist because of the government. Like uh, what's going on there? Are, are, is the government, is the federal government innovating enough? And how do we kind of boost that other than just kind of uh, partnering with industry? What, what, what more can innovations labs do to push, push uh, more products out? Yeah. Well, uh, I think that one of the challenges that we have, right. Is uh, again, the scale and complexity of who's doing what, right. You, right. you participated in FedTech. Some of your uh, viewers may not know what that that's right? true. Is that one of five programs that do those sorts of things? Is that one of 10 programs that do that sort of thing? Is it 20 programs? Do they exist in the Air Force, in the Navy, right. in the Army, right, in the Coast Guard? Uh, wh- where do those programs exist to do that sort of thing? And so I think um, a lot of the, the challenge is really making sure that the DOD and the federal government gets the word out effectively to, uh, to, to industry 
to allow folks to be able to participate there, uh, gets the word out effectively to the government workforce um, to allow the employees to take part in some of those sort of things. And I think they're getting better and better at that, but it is a challenge of scale. I go back to the DOD is the largest employer on the planet, right? Right. Well over 3 million employees, uh, very large organization, super complex. And I think they do for the size that they are a fantastic job of getting the word out and, you know, sharing information as best they can. Um, but a lot of it really depends on that program management leadership, that team leadership to be able to participate and not get so focused every day that you don't know what's going on. And so, so uh, part of my answer to you is I encourage programs to innovate, to take a look at what is out there, to like take a look at what federal programs are out there, what innovation programs, FedTech program, right? What, what is out there that they can participate in, number one, where they can contribute something to innovation? Number two, on the federal innovation lab side of the house, um, the, the DOD has been innovating for an awful long time. The federal government has right. been innovating for a long time. Right. NASA just landed uh, a Perseverance rover on Mars, right? And they're right. doing fantastic. They do a fantastic job. Well, who built that? That was a combination of federal government, right, and NASA and, and industry, right, building, building that rover and, and, and flying that mission, right? Phenomenal achievement, right? Um, that is just one of the... the great examples of something that is supremely hard and supremely innovative and that took a very long time to happen right, right. so that mission didn't get launched yesterday and didn't get conceived yesterday right that that mission took many years right to conceive of to build to test to launch to get to mars and then to finally um, produce what it's producing today which is just the start of an amazing journey so from an innovation perspective I think the federal government has a lot to offer. Uh, our federal research labs, our uh, Navy research labs, our Air Force research labs, our Army research labs, right? All of, all of our research labs and our innovation hubs have a role to play in that ecosystem, and they have to continue to focus on doing that. There is no innovating enough, right? I, in my mind, uh, the answer is not, well, yeah, we, we've innovated enough. Uh, let's just keep it at this level. <laughs> right. Right. We're not going to innovate anymore for a while. We're, let's take a break from innovation. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, can't do that. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, going back to the history of our country, you know, the innovations in defense, innovation in the federal government, uh, the, you know, the birth of all of our technology over the last century, you know, to today where we're involved in big data, we're involved in the internet, social media, and incredible uh, technologies, bandwidth driven technologies, high bandwidth technologies that are going to help us connective technologies, connective tissue, like joint, uh, all domain command and control, right? Uh, how do we connect all of our defense systems better together, right? To have seamless understanding of what's happening, uh, both before uh, a fight begins and, and during a fight to give us an advantage, right? All of those things require innovation, all, all of them. And they require innovation, little innovations, right? Medium innovations and big innovations, right? right? So all of that ecosystem, whether it's industry or the federal government, needs to continue to focus here, continue to reward innovation, talk about it, uh, do concrete things to enable innovation uh, in your office and in your in your program and in your in your company. Um, we've got to continue to do that. And and I think we're a nation built on innovation. We're a nation built on um, allowing people to think outside the box, to think creatively, Absolutely. think critically, right? And I think that that we need to continue to foster that across the board in everything we do. Yeah, absolutely. And 
um, to kind of, you know, wrap it up here, because we definitely, I mean, we could go on for hours and hours talking about this. I mean, fantastic. Oh, it's been a fantastic conversation. I've definitely learned a lot. So I guess my, my question, like that kind of summarizes stuff, where do we go from here? What, what needs to be done? What are some next steps or next actionable steps that federal agencies can take to not only ensure that we're continuing to have that innovative spirit and also that entrepreneur spirit, but also make sure that, you know, we are, we as a nation are improving, not only keeping pace with our adversaries, but also making sure that we're smart and effective partners with our allies as well. Yeah, that's that's a, a really good summary of, of where we need to go, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you know, credit to you for saying that, right? Um, that's exactly what we need to do. Uh, it's an ecosystem. And in this country, we're right. in it together, right? Uh, right? Sometimes we tend to forget uh, that we're in it together, but we absolutely are, right? We, we all live here. We all enjoy the freedoms every day that this country and the system of government provides us, right? We need to make it better. We need to work together to make it better. On the federal government side of the house, very, very large employer, right? A lot right. of money spent on the federal government, both in DOD and all other federal agencies. I think all federal agencies and employees need to recommit to being team players, right? Being good to each other, being focused on their end users and their customers, and being focused on innovation. Be good teammates, collaborate, right. share information, right. advantage of technologies, right? Um, if you go to work every day, with a great attitude and willingness to work hard, there is nothing that you can't accomplish. Absolutely. Right? There's absolutely nothing. As long as you have those two things, great attitude, willingness to work hard, you can form a team and you can you can charge that hill together, right? Now, knowing what hill to charge is really the basis of your question, right? What what next steps need to take place? I think our senior leadership in, in federal government and DOD, especially on the acquisition side, understands the challenge as well. And I think they've made some significant strides in the last several years of starting to adjust our approaches to allow us to be able to do things faster while still keeping the system fair, right? Uh, and by the way, the, our acquisition, our federal government acquisition system is not and has never been designed to be fast. Right. right. So if any of your, uh, your viewers think that it was designed to be fast, they're absolutely incorrect. It's designed to be fair. Right. right. It's designed to be fair so that we get the right capabilities for the right dollars and we don't give uh, anyone an unfair advantage in, in, in uh, being able to provide for our country and, and uh, a wisely spending taxpayer dollars. Uh, right. And so the strides that our senior leadership have made in the areas of defense acquisition reform, working with Congress to get that done, finding different ways to uh, to get systems built faster, to get in the hands of warfighters faster. They've done a great job at starting to adjust that. I think the next several years will be, uh, a, we need to run those new systems, run those new processes, see what's working and what's not. Over the last couple of years, we've gone through, a, for example, a very uh, interesting path with, with other transaction authorities as a way right. to get speed, uh, you know, uh, speed to systems and speed to, to the warfighter. And we've had some bumps, right? We've had, you know, we've had some folks who know how to use it, who maybe don't know how to use it, uh, you know, how to structure it well, and, and how not, you know, some some challenges in terms of structuring those types of things. But I think as we run those over the next several years, we're going to find what's working well and what's not, and we're going to make some adjustments to that. So I'm very, very optimistic now that we're on a better path to be able to provide systems faster and take advantage of that speed and technology and give ourselves an advantage over our adversaries in the long term. So we got to keep pushing there. I would encourage all of your viewers to collaborate internally, collaborate.
collaborate externally, get involved in innovation activities, look around uh, every once in a while, spend 10%, 20% of your time investigating what somebody else is doing right in your field in DOD, uh, do your professional reading, surf the web, see what other government sites are doing, right? Make connections. Those are the things that continue to build your skills, build your knowledge, build your brain. Uh, and those are the things that will, will help us provide an advantage in the future if everybody does that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I always say that, um, you know, this is a perfect time to learn new skills because business and industry has slowed down. We're all kind of not, we're all not technically on an equal playing field, but we all have time. Much more time than we thought we did. And so. you have information access at right. your fingertips that you did not have 20 years ago. Absolutely. That you had to go to a library to look up. It's available almost immediately in front of you to get into your brain. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Mr. Abreu. This has been a fantastic conversation. I learned so much and and I'm not really a mathematician, but I will try to uh, use that uh, factorial approach in my business decision and my understanding of ecosystems and uh, networks. Uh, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to us. And thank you listeners and viewers for um, listening to this conversation. This has been, again, another rendition of Government in Plain Language. Thank you for your time and have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, Viviti. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the show, please share it with others share it on social media, and even leave a review. To catch all the latest from our team, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at MSY Associates. That's MSY Associates. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.